Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your sports betting needs and info. Find all the latest odds, news, and developments, including Major League Baseball, latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. The training camp right around the corner, Bet Online has opened up odds for team wins, division futures, and of course, the Super Bowl. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Network. As always, thank you for being with us and making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. This is episode 29 of season four, and we're going to be discussing today Uh, deal-making and regulation in the college sports market uh, with a particular focus on deal terms and agreements and the NCAA's role in compliance. And um, part of uh, this sort of episode is is really in relation to a lot of the NIL news that's come out recently with uh, Texas Tech um, essentially issuing uh, this sort of directive that they're going to be paying, I think it's like 200 something of their college athletes, $25,000 a year um, pursuant to their collectives, which is essentially donors and, um, and other brands that are involved in that, but essentially donors and alumni, uh, which sometimes can be one and the same. But uh, I think that ultimately, um, that news, uh, news that schools are, are moving towards um, sort of marketplaces where they're having, helping to set up deals for athletes and what that looks like in terms of, you know, this, this sort of call for, you know, what is, what is pay to play and what does that mean? Um, and then, of course, this idea that, you know, should collectives be allowed to organize and pay money to athletes, even if it's legit, you know, um, name, image, and likeness deals where they're promoting some, some product or giving some sort of service, like consulting on something. If they have a passion or influence or, or expertise in, let's say, a clothing line or music or, or what have you, uh, which, which uh, you know, athletes often do in terms of they, they tend to be multifaceted people. It's not just, you know, sports that they play well, they can do other things well. And, um, and, you know, frankly, that's sort of what makes them athletes, right? Is the fact that they have the ability to excel, um, and you know, in particular in sports, but then also in in other things. And so, um, and ultimately, their drive to succeed in sports is, is what is what helps to you know um, to help drive them in other industries and and uh, in sort of complementary industries and in other jobs. But I, I think that um, again, there's been a lot of news around NIL. And uh, there's some questions that have come up uh, when it comes to 
what does a contract look like for an NIL deal? What are some things to uh, be wary of? Um, and we're not going to dive in too deeply on that, but just to highlight a couple of points in terms of the importance of, of NIL and sort of um, where we've come from and where we are now. And so, again, with sort of this particular focus on deal terms and agreements and the NCAA's role in compliance, you know, I, I think that if we look back to the summer of 2021, we can see that there was a host of state legislatures that passed laws. California is in particular focused with regard to the Fair Pay to Play Act. And of course, the NCAA uh, came along and decided to remove the rule on college athletes from profiting from their NIL. And it changed the trajectory of college sports forever. Uh, college sports was already a big industry, but I think when you add in NIL and some of the other rule changes with, um, with the ability to for the transfer portal, uh, with the Alston decision, which opened up uh, this idea that you cannot limit educational benefits. It, it really has created this sort of perfect storm, if you will. And, uh, but if you sort of look at the historical perspective on this, you know, college sports did not begin as these sort of um, huge sports, you know, leagues, if you will. Uh, you know, if anything, uh, college began as educational institutions. It was to educate people. And then as a secondary measure, uh, it was this idea of playing sports to pass the time, uh, to stay healthy, to get active. And eventually that grew over time, uh, where arguably uh, sports at a particular university um, uh, could be just as important. Now, I think uh, as education, but I, I think there's some, some qualifications there in that, you know, there's some schools that do not, are not very big in sports. There's others that are. But I think that sports seem to be sometimes bigger than they are because really what we're talking about is maybe 100, 200, 300 athletes in a total program, maybe bigger for larger schools. But ultimately, uh, those individual athletes are a small percentage of the students who go to a school. So, for example, let's say that, you know, there's, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 athletes at UCLA or USC in terms of all sports. Well, you know, at UCLA, you've got potentially 60,000 students between graduates and undergraduates. And you've got, you know, uh, hundreds of different majors and programs. And so, but of course, because sports is this sort of public facing thing and it's very popular, it's on TV, people pay to go watch games, there's merchandise, the whole thing tied to sports. I think it makes it bigger than it is in terms of, obviously it's a big industry, but I think some perspective is, is important there, right? And, but I, I think, again, going back to the history of this, these schools really started a degree, as degree, you know, offering institutions um, and, and potentially as degree earning institutions. Uh, that has, of course, changed a little bit, uh, I think, helped by huge broadcast deals, uh, merchandise, um, NIL. And of course, it's only going to grow as you look at, you know, video games coming out for college sports and the continued growth of NFTs and the metaverse. Um, this idea of, um, you know, again, the NIL market in general growing, more brands coming along, people getting a sense of what the market is and what it can provide, uh, what it means for women's college athletics in terms of growing those sports. Um, and then, of course, again, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court decision in Alston uh, that said, you know, quote, cannot restrict educational re re education related benefits, uh, compensation benefits for student athletes, end quote. So, 
again, this sort of perfect, perfect storm was created. I think the question is, is uh, where does this perfect storm go from now? Uh, where do these changes lead in terms of the business of college sports? And how does the NCAA and state legislatures and the federal government, particularly through Congress, regulate? I think that's anyone's guess at this point. I think there's probably some more likely or nots uh, to be to be guesstimated there, but um, we'll get into it a little bit here. So I, I think to sort of begin with, there's a little bit of irony in in a lot of the discussion that's going around for fair pay to play, right? Or or paired or pay to play, and of course, of course, California's Fair Pay to Play Act is somewhat of a misnomer um, and somewhat um, ironic in that the whole idea of NIL was to pay athletes directly to promote a product. It was not meant to pay them a salary or what have you. But the namesake of, of, of course of it is, is somewhat, um, uh, somewhat misleading. But it was the first NIL legislation to pass uh, and it was NCAA President Mark Emmert um, uh, um, who essentially said that uh, California was the catalyst to getting, to essentially having the NCAA change the rule. And of course other states followed so it was somewhat of a snowball effect there too. But again, that's sort of the name of fair pay to play uh, is somewhat of a misnomer, right? But I, I think that ultimately a true and pure NIL deal is really pretty simple. A true name, image, and likeness deal is one where an athlete gets paid either money, equity, or products and services from a brand or a business to post something on social media to endorse a product. So let's say athlete gets approached by a, let's say a sports drink, sports drink says, promote this product. And they agree to some, some post on whatever platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, you know, YouTube or whatever saying this, you know, and they usually agree on the language to promote. They agree on contract terms. How long does it last? How many times do you have to do it? And then what do you get paid? That sort of thing. And generally, if you're dealing with a large brand, it's usually going to be money and or product or maybe a service discount or whatever, sometimes a combination of those. You're usually only get, going to get equity in a company if this is something that's like a startup um, or the particular brand or product or service does not have a lot of leverage. And so uh, they might give up ownership in a company to get the player to do something. Uh, now, this could also include television and radio ads. Um, it could even include appearances. Sometimes even the social media posting part of a contract will have some additional deliverables that I'll say, you know, you need to show up, you know, at X time at X place to promote this product or service. But that to me, in my mind, is a true NIL deal. And anything beyond that is, is probably not classified as NIL. You know, if you're paying somebody um, to... Um, let's say do a job, but it's not like a legitimate job. It's, it's not like a true consulting job or something where they're getting paid uh, to do actual work. Um, you know, again, I think you're going beyond NIL there. If you're using, you know, let's say NIL to recruit athletes to make promises as to what NIL, you know, could be offered to them, I think that's crossing the line. Now, if you're recruiting an athlete and the athlete asked, you know, what's, what was the NIL figures last year on the school? Clearly you could provide those numbers and that's okay. Cause you're just providing factual information about what the school has done. And I think frankly, that's probably a better route to go 
than just offering the person money because then it gives them, um, so, um, you know, it gives, uh, you know, folks an idea of, of uh, this idea of, you know, ultimately what an NIL deal is, right? So um, I think where the conversation may get murky is when college athletes are getting paid to play. And let me give you an example of that, that uh, maybe makes this a little bit murkier. So if you say um, there's an athlete securing an NIL deal, and let's say there's a clause in the contract in the, in the agreement that says um, that the athlete's performance on the field is based on what the athlete will be paid. So let's say touchdowns, sacks, points, home runs, hits, goals, whatever, whatever the sport is, right? Well, in a typical professional sports contract, that's completely legal and, and frankly, probably preferred um, by both sides because ultimately you get your guarantee and then you get some sort of bonus or incentive-based contract, right? And this is particularly helpful for older uh, professional athletes. But when you're in the college ranks, you know, age is not really a problem. Injury, of course, is always a problem, um, you know, particularly in football or hockey, uh, and really in any sport, but I think that uh, the older you get, obviously, um, the more injury prone you tend to get uh, based on sort of human development. But I think the point here is, is that uh, clearly the answer would be no, you would not be able to pay to play. You would not be able to, in this circumstance, pay to perform, because that would clearly be pay to play, right? Now, maybe you make the argument, this is not pay to play, this is pay for, for, for performance. I think it's an argument for probably for a court to, to figure out um, or for the NCAA to figure out and then for eventually the court to figure out if there was a lawsuit. But it, these are some interesting things to consider, right? Because is pay to play also performance? Um, I think on its face, it probably is. But I think as you dive deeper, maybe not. You know, Maybe there's an argument to be made that performance is not pay to play. But I think um, at least my initial conclusion on this would probably be uh, that it is pay to play. And again, it's not legal advice. This is just sort of conjecture as to, um, you know, how this might play out. Now, another circumstance would be how about paying a college athlete for being available to play or being enrolled, to be more specific, be enrolled in a college as an athlete. Now, uh, of course, that situation gets even murkier, right? Because if you're saying that you're just, you're, that, you know, sort of your, your purpose in a contract, that the main thing that you're going after is that this athlete has some notoriety and they have social media presence, followers and engagement based on the fact that they are a college athlete. That is factual, right? Because you're, you are literally paying this person because they have a benefit, a, a notoriety that you want to exploit in sort of a good way. You want to exploit it, want to pay the person to, to promote a product or a service, right? But of course, um, there might be some that would say that's pay to play, right? You can't have that provision in a contract because that would ultimately, um, you know, put the uh, pay to play situation uh, out there. Now, I would argue that uh, that's probably not the case, I think, uh, and I would sort of turn back to an old doctrine that you learn in law school and it's this case called Krell v. Henry, K-R-E-L-L v. Henry from 1903. It's an English law case. And of course, a lot of the American law principles come from England. And um, 
And so I think this idea is that with this particular case, there was sort of this king's coronation, right? And this person had purchased a window view in an apartment that was going to be overlooking the king's coronation, which basically means uh, in some ways, I guess you could say, uh, when the Golden State Warriors won the championship, they had a coronation of people going down, you know, a major boulevard, a major street. And so you might have purchased a Airbnb or an apartment or some sort of view to watch this coronation. So that's basically what's happening here, right? Well, something happens inside of this sort of agreement where in the situation where this person had purchased an apartment to watch this coronation, um, the, which was essentially the purpose of the agreement, right? That he wanted to watch this coronation and needed this apartment to do it. Well, the apartment basically became unavailable for some reason, right? That I don't even recall, but that, that point's not important other than it was not at the fault of uh, the party who was purchasing uh, the apartment. And so, um, and I don't think it was at the fault really of anybody, uh, but ultimately there was this sort of what they might call a legal term of art would be frustration of purpose. And so what happened was um, the person who um, was trying to secure the apartment was let off of having to pay for it because his purpose was frustrated, meaning that he could no longer have the apartment uh, that he had chosen to view this coronation. Uh, and so if you apply that in the context of a let's say an athlete, you might say something more like, um, if a college athlete is no longer in college athletics, uh, there's, uh, that would be a basic assumption of a brand or a business, and it would be frustrated, right? If, if this brand or business no longer had a college athlete to have uh, endorse a product. And again, look, these matters are litigated, uh, they're argued, uh, this is not legal advice, but I think that uh, the point is, is that is that pay to play? Is, is this sort of idea of you're paying somebody because they are an athlete, because they are a college athlete? And I think ultimately it's, my argument would be that it's not, that, um, that pay to play has strictly to do with paying an athlete a salary and, and, uh, and maybe a few other things. But when it comes to, if you're, if you're trying to negotiate a deal and the athlete decides to quit college, well, he's no longer valuable in the sense of what they're purchasing. Their frustration is, uh, their purpose is frustrated, right? And the athlete may be valuable in other things, right? Of course, you know, they could be valuable off the field in business, be valuable off the field and what have you. And actually you, you could make the argument that as a lot of athletes do, um, you may get into broadcast television and you may still have a notoriety. You can get into something else. So of course, um, you could make that argument. You could say, hey, I still have value. I'm still able to promote your product in a legitimate way uh, in, in, a, in a way that can grow the product. So again, there's a lot of ways you can go there, but again, it's just something to keep in mind as you're building these deals and you're thinking about this because um, not everything's always in black and white, right? I think there's a lot of gray area here. And frankly, I think the last year of name, image, and likeness has, has been gray area. It's been, it's been somewhat of a wild west. And of course, one interesting point to think about going forward is that NIL deals, um, when they come to fruition in the coming months and years, we have to realize that tax law, morals clauses, breach of agreements can all apply to college athletes. 
So you're going to see litigation there. You're going to see when things go wrong, you're going to start seeing some of that stuff um, in, in sort of brand deals and social media deals. And really what I mean is, is that the field of college sports has now entered into a new era. Um, there used to be a protective shield around college sports because athletes were not profiting from their name, image, and likeness. And there weren't these super leagues. But again, these, these college sports are moving more and more towards a professional model that it really takes them out of that protective area of the NCAA. And the Power Five continues to have more autonomy. There's more conference realignment into these super leagues. Uh, a lot of these things change, right? And of course, I think Congress and the public are going to look at college sports differently. And so maybe some of these antitrust exemptions and that sort of coverage may not be uh, as applicable. Uh, there's no sort of evidence that that's occurring, but it's just something to keep in mind. And, and of course, I think another thing to keep in mind is, is that after we've sort of had this year of Wild West approaches to NIL, which is maybe not such a bad thing in the sense that you're figuring it out, you're trying to, you're trying to see what works and what's gone on in the NCAA, I hope is sort of, and I believe is taking notes and seeing what's happening. But I think you're going to see rules and regulations and discipline for NIL activity. Um, I think you're going to see state legislatures continue to pass laws to guide the college market. I think it is very unlikely, 99% chance, 99.9% .9 chance that Congress will not get involved uh, with what you might call commandeering the states to do something with regard to NIL or to not do something or to set some national threshold. It's just not going to happen. It's not something that is in the constitution for, for Congress in terms of something that they have power over. Um, uh, it, it, this is something that's generally reserved to the states. So I think the states are, this is again why the states have stepped up to do this. And again, I don't think the votes are there. I don't think the votes are there to, to secure any sort of national NIL legislation, let alone the interest in this. Uh, not to mention that every state in the union would sue um, if, uh, if the federal government decided to pass some national law uh, which might frustrate sort of um, their business. And of course, the Murphy decision uh, is an example of this. And of course, the Murphy decision, if you guys recall, is this idea that um, it was Murphy v. NCAA, which essentially overturned the PASPA Act, was the gambling act that said you could not gamble in basically outside of a certain few areas in the United States. That was overturned as un 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 unconstitutional because you cannot commandeer a state to do or not do something. It's un unconstitutional. So I don't think Congress would do it again. I think, um, you know, I don't think it'd be, I think it'd be unwise and I don't think they're gonna pursue that. There hasn't really, really any evidence of that. There's been talk about it in the sense that maybe a Senator or two might say something, but I think that's probably done more for political appetite than anything else. And again, the votes aren't there uh, in terms of Congress agreeing to a national model. Uh, so I think that some questions going forward Will there ever be a salary cap or a talent cap when it comes to college sports in these super leagues? Should NIL collectives be banned? Will the NCAA and colleges put dollars towards hiring compliance officers and securing the necessary software to assist in regulation? Will college institutions do the same? And how will the college football playoff change through expansion? And how will March Madness change through expansion? I think all these things are sort of a, a time will tell type situation, but um, uh, very interesting topic indeed. And we'll all be following this uh, as, it, as it comes to the sort of weeks and months and years ahead. But um, as always, appreciate listening in. 
Um, and uh, thank you so much for uh, making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Evans. This is the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Network. This episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you so much and have a great week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube